Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Winebanks. And I'm also the person who wears hashtag Jill's pins. And in honor of the topic we are talking about today, which is Senate rules that are allowing a threat to our um, national security by Senator Tommy Tupperville, I'm wearing my Capitol pin showing both the House and the Senate sides, but I thought that was appropriate for our conversation. But before we get to introducing our guest, who I know is going to be fabulous, I just wanted to say I just got back from New York where, because of the UN meeting, it's the worst traffic ever. But also, I'm noticing travelers are now starting to wear masks again because the COVID numbers are really going up. I have a number of friends who have gotten infected. You, Victor, got COVID. Yes, I did. Are only recently testing negative. And so I wanna talk about what you and I are doing to protect ourselves and the ones we love and what we hope everyone listening will do to protect themselves. Yes, what? well, like you said, I, I tested positive for COVID last Wednesday, so, so a week ago from the time that people are listening to this. And luckily, the symptoms weren't terrible. This is my second time getting COVID. Um, and, you know, I am grateful for just vaccines and, and science and um, a healthy immune system. But, you know, going forward, I think one of the things that I'm going to try to do um, is, I, first of all, of course, staying updated with vaccines, but also continuing to wear masks. I still wear a mask in planes as well as in um, public transportation settings, because I think that, you know, I don't know who around me has gotten vaccinated or who follows precautions. But, you know, Jill, I do have to say, I am so disheartened. I know Twitter isn't real life, but when I posted that I had COVID on Twitter, the number of people who were like, well, you know, this is what vaccines do to you or <laughs> like, um, like, like you, like so much for being pro vaccine. I mean, the, the number of people who have fallen into that narrative is so sad to me. And I, and so that's why I continue to wear a mask, first of all, but also just like how, like, how, how have we come so far as a country where people can't even agree on vaccines and science and things that are meant to protect you? And that was really sad to me. But um, I don't know. What do you think of that? And, and what are you doing to protect yourself? And well, I come from a generation where when the polio vaccine became available, no one questioned it and everybody got it. We believed in science and facts, and I still do. And the evidence is so clear that the vaccine has prevented deaths, has prevented serious illness. I had COVID, even though I was fully vaccinated, but my symptoms were, were minor. And it was an inconvenience because I did the correct thing, which was to isolate as you did. I didn't even sleep in the same bed with my husband. I didn't eat with him because, and we wore a mask if we were in the same room, we both wore masks. And so I am, I actually believe what the airlines say about how clean their air is and the filter system protects you. Um, but if I go to a grocery store, drugstore, or am in an elevator or a bus or train, a mask I think is the best way to go. And it's a minor inconvenience to wear it. And the benefit is huge. And all during COVID, I never had a cold. And I used to get colds every single year. So I'm right. sure that masks had a a role in that. And of course, the new vaccine is out. 
I'm certainly going to get it. I'm hoping today or tomorrow I'm traveling on Thursday. So I hope that I can get it before I get on the plane. And um, I just think we should all take care of ourselves. I also take magnesium and zinc and vitamin C, yeah. which I think yes. protects you somewhat. And um, what's the harm? I mean, it, right. it doesn't hurt you and it might help. And I try to eat fruits and vegetables and eat a healthy diet because I think general immunity helps, general health melt, you know, male. So I hope all of our audience will stay healthy and take precautions. I'm not reverting to what I did when COVID first came down, which was to leave my mail untouched. I would not touch the mail or open it until several days after it arrived in case there was any virus on it. I wanted it to disappear. I washed not only my fruits and vegetables, which I do anyway, but I washed every box that came into this house. I, I super cleaned everything. I sanitized everything. I sanitized my seat plane. Um, you know, I carried around Lysol wipes with me. Right. I don't think I have to go back to that extreme. I yeah. think the evidence has showed that that's not how it's transmitted. And so that a mask is a good protection. Lysol wipes, maybe not so necessary. Well, you know, I, I do think there are there are just general habits that COVID has has impressed upon me that have stuck with me, like knowing how to wash my hands properly. Now, I remember during the COVID, you know, those those videos where, you know, you had to wash your hands for 20 seconds and how do you get into the nails and all of that, you know, that that's a good habit. And then also, you know, I, I guess just I, I'm not at first wearing a mask was, you know, a little bit uncomfortable and it still kind of is, but it's a it's a good thing. And, and I think you know, I think once Jill, you said it, you know, none of us have, we have time to get, we don't have time to get sick. I mean, so protect yourself and get, you know, eat a healthy diet. Don't put junk into your body and wash your hands regularly and frequently. So you don't end up putting anything harmful in your body or touch anything. Um, so I think COVID gave us some good habits that we can all hopefully walk away from. Great. So let's get to our guest today. Well, like Jill said, I mean, we are talking Tommy Tuberville today, and you've likely heard of the name. Yes, the former football coach who now sits in the U.S. Senate. He's become infamous for his hold on all military confirmations because he objects to the Pentagon's current uh, abortion policy, not to any of the nominees. His campaign poses a great danger to our military and national security. And Tuberville is holding up more than 650 military promotions and nominations. Virtually all Democrats and even some Republicans have chastised Tuberville for endangering our chain of command, military, and democracy. So we wanted to know what can be done about this. Can the Senate end this hold? And why can it last so long? And both Victor and I had serious questions about this. And so we searched for the perfect guest to answer our questions. And we found Norm Ornstein, who is a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute, where he has been studying politics and elections and Congress for decades. Previously, he led the AEI Brookings Election Reform Project. He has appeared on many media outlets and has written for essentially every single major news publication and magazine. His latest piece in The Atlantic is what brought us to him for this particular topic. It is entitled, The Senate's Deep and Dirty Secret. And it is about Tommy Tuberville's effort to block military promotions and how he is um, you know, doing this. We wanted to know, so we look forward to Norm telling us about this 
particular arcane practice in the Senate and telling us, because we don't want to just find out what the problem is, we want to find out, is there a solution? And that's what we want to talk to him about today. So we are welcoming him and thanking him for his time today and for his expertise. Welcome, Norm Ornstein. Oh, happy to be here. So, so we, we want to start off with your um, amazing piece in the Atlantic. Um, you've studied the Senate and its rules and procedures for decades. First, explain to us what Tommy Tupperville has gotten um, us into as a country. Uh, Tommy Tupperville has gotten us into a direct threat to our fundamental national security, while also shaming the political process and the Senate along the way. Of course, we know what Tupperville did, and it is a classic technique of senators. All of them use it, but none of them have used it uh, to hijack national security the way Tuber uh, Tuberville has. And here's the fundamental, Victor. Uh, the Senate, with its 100 members, has always tried to operate by bending over backwards to protect individuals and the minority. So unlike the House, where it's pretty regimented in terms of when votes take place and what you can do as an individual, uh, in the Senate, most things are done through unanimous consent. They move it along by asking for unanimous consent. And that's true of confirmations. So you bring a confirmation to the Senate floor, you ask unanimous consent to bring it to a vote. Overwhelmingly, it's granted, you move on. What happens with a hold is that a senator says, I will not give unanimous consent. So what a hold is, and this has been around, it's not in the rules itself. It's been around for many decades. Uh, traditionally, what happens is a senator will send a letter to the leaders saying, I will not give unanimous consent on this nomination and a vote for a confirmation. Now what happens? If there's no unanimous consent, then the way you can bring something to a vote is you have to file a cloture petition, something that's familiar to a lot of people because that's what a filibuster is all about. Cloture means you're going to stop action and move to a vote. That takes two days, two legislative days, which is not two calendar days, to, as they say, ripen. And then you got a bunch of other parliamentary maneuvers and then you have a cloture vote. And after the cloture vote, which for confirmations now only takes 50, uh, not the 60 for legislation, but that you then have many hours of debate allowed after that. So the bottom line here is that to do any of these confirmations, if somebody's put a hold on, takes days, soaks up a lot of floor time, and that means there are other things you cannot be doing. What Tuberville has done is to put a blanket hold on all military, uh, uh, not just confirmations, but promotions. And that includes military figures who are being promoted from captain to major, from major to colonel, but it also includes the heads of the services, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, all of these other absolutely critical positions. And he has done this not because he doesn't like these people. It has nothing to do with any of them. It is blackmail to try and force the Pentagon and the Biden administration 
to stop providing travel funds for women who happen to be at a base. They're assigned, they have no choice where abortions are not allowed to be able to move for that procedure to another state where they are. They'll have to pay for the procedures themselves. It's simply to provide the travel funds. And the rationale here is we are bringing these people in, thanking them for their service. They're going to have to serve in places they wouldn't live otherwise. And we're not going to make their lives miserable or more difficult if they want to do something that's perfectly legal somewhere else. Tuberville wants to stop that, and he has refused to budge at all. And this is not the way a cold usually works. It's not the way it worked before. It's not about the rules. It's about the norms and how you behave. And Tuberville is behaving monstrously. So how long has this been going on for, and what, how many nominees currently are pending confirmation or nomination? This has been seven months now, and we are moving close to having 650 people. Now, you can make, uh, you can argue, Victor, um, is it appropriate for the Senate to have to confirm officers who are being promoted from captain to major? What's the point of this? In the past, there's been tradition. The Senate's had this. They like to have it. It's sort of, look at what we're doing here. We're promoting officers. It's good for defense. And they've usually done it by asking unanimous consent to do dozens or more of these on block as it is together, one vote. And it takes, you know, 15 minutes. Uh, now you can't do that. And of course, if you tried to bring up every one of these confirmations, one after the other, taking days, right. the Senate would be completely crippled from doing anything else. Was that a rule change or was that because of, I, I, you mentioned, no. no. So the hold is not a rule. The rule is that to move on most activities in the Senate, you need unanimous consent. Right. right. And it's exploiting the unanimous consent provision. Now, there's another part of this that's important to realize. Uh, if you're not on the floor and somebody says, I ask unanimous consent, then if there's no senator that supports Tuberville, presumably you could just go ahead and do all these confirmations. But the way the hold has worked is sort of tacit agreement among all senators, and in particular those of the party of the individual doing the hold, that when that person is not on the floor, you always have one representative from each party on the floor that whoever's representing your party is going to honor that hold and will also deny unanimous consent. So you can't work around it like if Tuberville was off in Alabama when a vote took place or when the Senate was in session. And so it's kind of a dirty little secret of the Senate that it's not just Tuberville. It's everybody else now as an unindicted co-conspirator in what Tuberville is doing. And in particular, that's true of the Republicans in the Senate who are going along with it because they don't want anybody sticking it to them if they put a hold on. Wow. So that's a point we definitely want to get into later. But first, can you give us a historical overview of, I mean, when you look at past uses of the hold, has it ever been this extreme or this long in terms of length of period of time or the number of nominees who have been kind of stuck? We have seen at times in the past when there were holds on multiple individuals. We have seen uh, instances where holds went on for a long time. 
One of the examples I mentioned in my piece, and it's one that continues to grate for me, is Tom Cotton, the Republican senator from Arkansas, put a hold that lasted for two years on uh, the Obama administration's nominee to be ambassador to uh, the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a woman who everybody acknowledged was extraordinarily qualified, uh, impeccable person. Cotton basically said he did it because he hated Obama. And this poor woman twisted in the wind for two years until she died of cancer before she could be confirmed. So we've had instances of mean-spirited, thuggish behavior by senators. We've also, we have now two other examples of senators using these blanket uh, holds. One of them, J.D. Vance, uh, for example, has put a hold on Justice Department uh, nominees because he doesn't like uh, what's happened at the border. Um, and that means that the person who is uh, charged with uh, running the office on, against violence against women at the Justice Department can't be confirmed. Several U.S. attorneys, which means that we are lacking the prosecutorial heft that we need out there in the country. And we've had uh, uh, others uh, who have been blocked by other senators. We've seen this happen before, but not to this extent. And frankly, if we go back over many decades, you have isolated examples of bad behavior uh, we had one instance where former Senator Larry Craig, who was upset because he wanted a couple of fighter jets in the state of Idaho, had put a secret hold on a number of Defense Department uh, people. And then it was eventually unmasked and he was embarrassed and he stopped doing it. Tommy Tuberville is incapable of being embarrassed. Okay, but you have Tommy Tuberville now saying, you know, well, this hold isn't as extreme as people are making it, despite the secretaries of Navy and, and War and the Air Force all saying that this is detrimental to our national security and it's unprecedented. Is there any sort of justification to what we've heard from or what you've heard Tuberville say um, since since doing this? Is this as, as, as extreme as we're making it out to be? It is as extreme as we're making it out to be. And we have to keep in mind that this is a man whose previous record was being a football coach in Alabama. That's where he got his name, and that's how he got elected uh, to the Senate. He has never served in the military. He is completely ignorant about what the military does and how it operates. He didn't know, for example, now that we're facing a vacancy in the chairmanship of the Joint Chiefs. And remember, we're looking at critical issues like support for uh, the war uh, against Russia in the invasion of Ukraine. We're looking at a whole series of other geopolitical potential uh, crises. He didn't know that if there's a vacancy in the chairmanship of the Joint Chiefs, you can't have a temporary replacement. So this is a man who is an ignoramus, uh, frankly, but also reckless and dangerous. And it's on the Senate now to do something about this. Whose responsibility is it in the Senate? I mean, you you mentioned um, that it, it's quite, I mean, it's in the incentive of Republicans to do what Tuberville is or to comply with him. But can Democrats who control anything, Chuck Schumer, do anything about this? If Schumer uh, and his colleagues were genuinely serious, 
they have ways of changing the rules. And we know that we've seen multiple examples where you can change the rules with a simple majority. Uh, one of the things that they could do is change the rules so that after a nominee is reported out of a committee waiting confirmation, that after 30 days, say, pick a day, 30 days, 40 days, that it automatically comes up for a vote in a privileged fashion. You can do that. So you can have a hold, but it can't be indefinite uh, or even for years. Another way of dealing with this is giving a Senate version of a rule that's been in the House uh, for uh, many, many decades. It's called a discharge petition. And the idea in the House is that if a committee is bottling up something that the majority of members want, they can sign a petition. And once you get a majority of signatures, that bill is ejected from the committee and ultimately brought uh, to a privileged vote on the floor. Do a Senate discharge petition for confirmations. Now, why haven't they done this? It's not clear that they have 50 votes uh, to begin with for almost any rules change. But what's also clear is that every senator wants to preserve the power of the hold. There are many, many examples of senators from the president's own party who wants something, maybe it's something for their constituents, and they get in touch with their own party's White House and get nowhere, they're ignored. It's small potatoes, uh, the White House may not care or might not like it. And so they use a hold, or some of them, for somebody the president really wants confirmed to get the attention of the White House and maybe to get action. So it's a power that they have as individuals and they really don't wanna give it up or dilute it. And there we need to basically put a spotlight on the entire Senate right. and get some push for action. And frankly, while they're at it, they should consider some other changes. Now, you know, to give step back and give you a little bit of history, uh, recent history, it was always the case that nominations for courts or executive positions fell under the usual filibuster rules. In other words, if somebody wanted to block a nomination, you would have to get 60 votes to put it through. Uh, that was changed during the Obama years because Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, made it clear that it didn't matter how qualified or extraordinary any nominees were for the most important appeals court, the second most important court in the country, the DC circuit, which is the one that handles all of the issues of uh, separation of powers, of executive power and the like, that because there was a narrow conservative majority, and despite the fact there were multiple vacancies and Obama had every right to fill them, McConnell said, we're not gonna let any of them go through, we'll filibuster every one. And Harry Reid, was forced at that point to try and change the rules to make the threshold 50 instead of 60. You can still filibuster, that's what we talked about before, but you only need a majority to overcome that. Uh, now we have that in place, but maybe it's time to make a couple of other changes. And one of them ought to be that you can do multiple nominations together on block. Instead of having each one come up and take days, maybe do 20 together or 10 together. 
And the second thing they ought to do is eliminate from the necessity for Senate confirmation hundreds of nominees. That includes people who are nominated for uh, part-time advisory commissions and boards, unpaid boards. No need to have those confirmed by the Senate. Streamline the process so the Senate can actually get more work done without having these delays and and uh, plugs put in place. I mean, I think when most people hear us talk about this, they just wonder, you know, this is exactly why people sort of disapprove of Congress right now. And because you have a Senate that is so inefficient and that really isn't doing its job. But I think still most people wonder, I mean, how is it possible that you have one senator, in this case, Tommy Tuberville, who is able to basically do all of this? And I mean, you mentioned that, you know, this is sort of how it is right now. But what can people do about this? What can... If people who are listening to this and watching this, is there any role for them to have in reforming this? I, I would hope that uh, people would get in touch with their senators. That includes Senate, Senate Democrats and say enough is enough and talk about what they could and should do to make this work better. They don't want to hear that. They prefer, I mean, you know, frankly, I think a whole lot of Democrats understanding the threat to national security still are perfectly happy to just pound away at Tuberville and the Republicans, but they also don't want to shine attention on the fact that they could do something about this if they had 50 votes to change the rules. So Norm, what does the current hold, which seems to me completely outrageous, and if you remember, I worked in the Pentagon, so I know the importance of the chain of command. I know the importance of when a general gets promoted one star up, then some colonel gets to be a general, some lieutenant colonel gets to be a colonel, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how the military works. And I think we are seeing here that there are military people leaving the military because they didn't get the promotion and their salaries don't match the workload. And so we're losing great officers. And I just want to know what it says about how the Senate has evolved and what it says about how undemocratic the Senate is. I know that it's made to take care of the minority. I heard you saying that, um, and, and that's important. But sometimes there can be tyranny of the minority. So what does it say where we're at? It doesn't say anything positive, Jill. And I'm glad you raised this point that it's not just about people in positions of authority in the military who can't occupy the positions they need, but the human cost. It's families um, who deserve the raise that they were supposed to get. And it's the cost that we're gonna have with attrition. And it tells us that the Senate, which is capable of changing this, won't do it. And the damage to the country is of secondary importance. Now, there's a lot more here uh, to, that we could unpack. First is, it's never operated particularly well. The Senate bending over backwards to protect individuals and minorities, we know, of course, led to many, many decades of oppression for African-Americans as they were able to block any civil rights legislation. We know that there are many other things that have been stopped in their tracks. We could look more recently at what Mitch McConnell did to distort the Supreme Court and then look at what's happened to the rights of Americans, voting rights, uh, protection for women's bodily autonomy, 
and on and on as a consequence of what McConnell did, misusing the Senate and the norms of the Senate. And that's another part of this. The Senate, you know, operated inefficiently, maddeningly, but for a lot of the time, there was at least this general sense that they would be able to overcome bad actors and that they could ultimately, because the leaders could get together and, you know, do the right thing. And when we had misuse of the holds in the past, they generally didn't last long, were taken care of. The damage was more like a, a flesh wound, not something more serious like this. Uh, but there's more. We know first that the Senate Republican Party is now dominated by the more extreme and radical members. Tommy Tuberville is not the only one. Ron Johnson, Marsha Blackburn, Mike Lee, we could go on and spend this entire podcast uh, talking about them. But what we also know is beyond the Republican Party turning into a cult, beyond the fact that the leaders, Mitch McConnell and the others, are not willing to or don't have the power internally to do anything about what Tuberville is doing, we have a broader problem with a political system designed uh, that in a way that just does not fit current realities. And I, I want to mention a statistic I now use very frequently. It, we're almost at a point where 70% of Americans live in just 15 of our 50 states. Now, think about what that means for the Senate. It means that 30% of Americans will elect 70 senators. And that 30%, it's not that the small states are all red, you know, you have Delaware, you have Maine. It's not that the big states are all blue. You got Florida, you got Texas, but the 30% don't in any way represent the diversity of the country or the economic dynamism of the country. Mm -hmm. And what it means is that Senate elections, you know, you hear all this talk. I, uh, this is something Mike Lee says all the time. We have to remember we're a republic. What is a republic? A republic is where voters elect their representatives who represent them. What happens when voters vote and the representatives no longer represent them? The whole legitimacy of the system is gonna come crashing down. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing now is the tip of the spear in a way to a much, much larger problem of legitimacy in the country. And of course it's the Senate, but it's also the electoral college, a house that's dominated by extreme partisan gerrymandering. Uh, Elections don't work the way the framers envisioned they would, even when they didn't have elections for every office. Well, of course, at the time the country was founded, there was a much more even dispersal of the population. You didn't yeah. have states the size of California, New York, Texas. Um, and as you said, they're not all blue, but it does make a big difference in terms of feeling my vote counts for a lot less than if I lived in Idaho, Montana. I'm not exactly sure you know, which would be the most advantageous to move to, but I think your answer has shown us how dangerous the current system is and how the state of the Senate is influencing our democracy. And you know that's, that's really bad with 2024 coming soon. What do you think could happen if Republicans take control of the Senate or the White House and um, the House, 
or keep control of the house. Yeah. So I, I actually think, you know, we're going through another farce right now that's going to lead to a government shutdown. And here it's the dysfunction of the Republicans running the House. I think it's more likely than not that Democrats recapture the House because the House Republicans have become so extreme. But it is more likely than not that the Republicans capture the Senate. There are many more Democrats up than Republicans in 2024. Remember, the Senate, it's a third that's up any given time, and that's really determined by what happened uh, six years earlier. And you can find a couple of Republican seats where maybe there's a chance of a turnaround, but like Florida, for example, or Texas, uh, Ted Cruz running against a terrific candidate, Colin uh, Alred, uh, Rick Scott uh, in Florida, uh, not very popular, but these states are so tribally red right now that it's really an uphill battle. And for Democrats, many of their seats are in jeopardy. And, you know, look at West Virginia, for example, uh, where Joe Manchin may or may not run for reelection, but it's become uh, a thoroughly red state. It's, uh, you know, could easily switch. We have Nevada, we have Arizona. There are many states where Democrats have to worry. Uh, so if there's a Democratic president, uh, the Senate under Republicans is not gonna confirm any judges, is gonna make the life of that president miserable in terms of executive appointments, including to the cabinet and the sub-cabinet, and will make governing even more difficult. And of course, we're going to see people uh, like Ron Johnson uh, running committees, and they're going to do with those committees what people like uh, Jim Jordan are, uh, and uh, Jim Comer are doing in the House right now. So look, the worst case scenario is a Republican gets elected president, and then we could kiss our democracy or our republic goodbye. But a Democratic president with a Republican Senate is going to have plenty of nightmares. Well, I tell my friends with children, send your children to live in a state where their vote actually matters. And yeah. so I think that that's something. But in the meantime, the only thing I would say, because you're painting a very scary picture, is that I think Democrats are really motivated and that they will come out in larger numbers than ever before to vote. I think young people, as witnessed by you know Victor, are motivated and they will come out to vote on key issues, including democracy, including gun rights, including the uh, climate change. I mean, I think there's enough issues where they are on the democratic policy side and that they will be motivated to protect what they grew up believing was true, a democracy. So I, I can only hope that's true because otherwise the picture you're painting is terrifying and I haven't found a place I want to live other than America, and I don't want to live in the America that you are painting. If we ended up with another Trump uh, term as president, we're all going to have to move. Uh, yeah. We we know, you know, even putting aside the cringeworthy nature of Kristen Welker's interview with Trump, uh, she at least did raise what Trump has made the centerpiece of his campaign, which is it's going to be all about retribution. Yeah. And we know that he will pick an attorney general uh, who is 
even more uh, horrifying than Bill Barr was, uh, a Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense who are even worse than the previous uh, occupants in his presidency. He will destroy NATO. Uh, he will ally with Russia, and there goes Ukraine. And it goes on and on and on. And our freedoms will be deeply curtailed. And it's you know unsettling that so many Americans either don't care or are perfectly willing to tolerate that. I do want to, you know, since you raised it and Victor's raised this many times as well, I am so frustrated by the degree to which our mainstream media are obsessed with whether Joe Biden should drop out uh, and take Kamala Harris with him. If, as you say, and you're right, uh, we need Democrats really motivated to turn out. Uh, what could cost that motivation? A wide open, bitter battle involving a dozen people for the Democratic nomination and uh, either choosing a woman of color where you're going to have at least some who aren't thrilled, but even far worse than that would be denying the heir apparent, the woman of color, the nomination. What does that do to your base? So this bloviating by columnists and uh, and journalists uh, is just completely uh, off base. And I do think the secret weapon right now is still the Dobbs decision and the degree to which an absolutely radical Republican Party has moved even more in the direction of being pro-death. It's basically saying, you're bleeding to death with a miscarriage? Hey, too bad. Let's hope that the bleeding stops. You're 10 years old. You've been raped by your uncle or your father. Hey, tough. You know, your life will be ruined, but you're going to carry that child to term. Ectopic pregnancy? Sorry. Uh, dead fetus? Carry it to term. You put all of those things together and what's happening in states and then places like Alabama saying we're going to criminalize people who try and go to another state unconstitutional, but with this Supreme Court, who knows what would happen. And I think that's a motivation for Democrats, for independents, and for plenty of Republicans in suburban areas who understand what the implications are. That plus the hope that the sterling record of Biden would finally penetrate for people can leave you feeling a little more optimistic. But I'll tell you what makes me pessimistic is no labels. This is a pernicious effort to try and sway the election, and we may not be able to do much about it. Well, as you probably know, Victor is one of the most enthusiastic um, supporters. We were both Biden delegates. We both ran and were elected as Biden delegates. We both look at his record of achievement and say, that's what you vote on, is look at the incredible amount that he has accomplished. That's what matters. But Let's let's move to something more cheery and optimistic. I, I know Victor wanted to ask you about debate camp. So Victor, let's talk, because that's sort of a future looking positive thing. 
But it's also something I think that, you know, really benefits this younger generation, really all generations is learning how to talk to each other and debate and critically think. And right before we recorded this, Norm, I was telling you, I think the last time we met was right after you had finished uh, doing your debate camp. And I assume you had one this year. Tell our audience a little bit more about that debate camp and what are the skills you hope the people in that debate camp walk away with by the end of it? I'm so glad you asked me. And Victor, next uh, summer, uh, I'm going to draft you to be a judge at uh, the tournament <laughs> we did at the end of camp. Um, so we started this nine years ago, and it was following the death of my son, Matthew, at age 34. Matthew had been a national champion high school debater. It was his passion. And, uh, and I saw what it did for people. And we decided that uh, a way in which we could honor his memory was to focus on what's called urban debate. And that is bringing uh, kids from public schools, uh, kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, uh, mostly Title I schools, to learn debate. We now do three weeks of a camp in the summer. It's uh, five days a week for three weeks. Uh, we give, it's all free. It's uh, breakfast, lunch, and instruction. Uh, and uh, it's policy debate. So there's one topic a year, although you can approach it from uh, any angle that you want. The three weeks are for the varsity debaters. The uh, And this is in the Washington, D.C. area. Two weeks are for novices, which now start with rising sixth graders. We're even going to start to move down and do some stuff at the elementary level and all the way up through high school. And then these kids go back to their schools, form teams, and they do monthly tournaments. So what debate teaches them is life skills. You learn how to speak in front of others. You learn how to do research. You learn how to argue every side of every issue because you don't know going into a round in a tournament whether you're gonna to have to take the affirmative side or the negative side. You learn an enormous amount of substantive knowledge. And critically now, you also learn something about media literacy because you're going to have to figure out every assertion you make has to have evidence behind it. You learn what is misinformation and disinformation. And at the end of camp, when we do a tournament and then an award ceremony, I always say, I believe fervently in equal opportunity. But there's nothing equal in a society where some people start 25 yards behind the starting blocks and others start 25 yards ahead. And the goal here is to get people to the starting blocks, at least, where their talents and their initiative can take them where they should go. And we've just had remarkable success with this. And of course, what also happens is this is civil discussion. It can be very heated, but we always focus on making sure that things do not get out of hand. We've never had an incident where we had to worry about these kids. And what we know from data is that kids who do debate have higher test scores, even after they've stopped doing debate, have greater success at staying in school, at moving on to college. This year, from our kids from public schools in Washington, D.C., and mostly Prince George's County, Maryland, we have three kids at Yale, one at Harvard, a couple at NYU. The winner of our Matthew Harris Ornstein uh, Award, which is not the best debater, but the one who best exemplifies his value, 
a young woman named Lee Bernstadt from a public school in Washington, D.C., won the National Urban Debater of the Year Award and has started her freshman year at Harvard and says that debate is what gave her this opening and this opportunity. We want to spread debate even more widely because if we're going to ever get back to a place where we can overcome tribalism in the country, debate is a good way to do that. And others are becoming as enthusiastic about this. And they're also doing debate-centered education. You can actually go into public schools and whether it's math or English or history or any other subject, pick a topic, debate it in the classroom. Kids get more engaged than if they're just sitting there listening to a lecture. And where they've tried this in Chicago and Boston, it's also just gotten more and more kids engaged and doing better in school. Although I bet there's nothing like that in Florida. Uh, but <laughs> it sounds like an amazing experience. And I, I, I have one last question I want to ask you, and then I hope you'll come back because I've read what you've written about the Electoral College, which sort of falls into the same anti-democratic format that America has. And I'd love to explore that with you. But um, I was really curious when I, because I know your views and you're a registered Democrat, although you consider yourself a centrist and have voted, you, you have said on both sides uh, of the aisle. Um, and AEI of course is um, known as a more conservative place. And you were once at Brookings, which is not. And so I'm just wondering how the transition was for you going from Brookings to AEI. So I taught political science for a number of years. And uh, I went I, it went to AEI part-time in 1978 wow. and then full-time in 1983. And I became emeritus uh, now almost two years ago. Um, but I was the, the longest serving person there. And um, it was a good place for me because I really did have total academic freedom uh, in the sense that I could say uh, and write whatever I wanted and did not get interfered with. And I know there were multiple occasions when board members, donors, and others complained bitterly about me to the leadership at AEI. And I don't know it because they told me directly, but I heard from others. I actually have somewhere in my papers a letter that Milton Friedman sent to the then president of AEI, uh, Chris Demuth, demanding that I be fired. Um, because I'd gone on the uh, McNeil Lehrer show, the precursor of the news hour, right. to defend Congress, uh, which he didn't like at all. Um, so I was perfectly happy there. And, you know, there were colleagues then, as there are people there now, I wanted nothing to do with, and I didn't have to have anything to do with them. And there were many others that I respected and liked and uh, would have very good conversations with. Some of them closer to my own views than many would imagine, others not so close, but serious people. Uh, you know, the think tank world has changed. There are places that are called think tanks like Heritage that are basically just right-wing advocacy organizations. There's no nothing serious uh, about them. There are others that are called think tanks that never were, but they're, you know, registered as 501c3s and probably shouldn't be. Uh, it's actually, I will say this about uh, AEI. 
a large number of the people there are very serious scholars of policy. And they're conservative, many of them. But I don't know if there's any place for that now where the Republican Party, which would have been the home for conservative policy ideas, doesn't care at all about policy. It's not conservative. It's radical authoritarian right. And uh, I really feel sorry for many of my former colleagues because I don't think they have a place to go with what they're doing. There are no people or very few people in uh, elective office, a handful of governors here and there, but very few others who are going to embrace those ideas. It's nihilistic now, uh, and uh, that's uh, it's too bad for the country. Well, that's how it is, I guess. And I'm glad you're there, and I bet you're honing your debate skills. And remember, I come from an era where I remember the um, the debate show with Buckley and Gore Vidal, where it was a civil discussion of philosophy, of policy, of the differences between ideas, not facts. They all agreed on facts, and it was just a policy debate. And I hope that we can, in this country, get back to that. And I know your work is going to help us there. And I will look forward to talking to you again on the Electoral College and what we can do about equalizing our votes. Yes. And I also have to say, I took a, oh, I, I, I'm technically an English major in college, but I took a poli-sci course this uh, summer. And Norm, you were the author of that book, or they mentioned you a lot of times. So okay. I, you were with me this summer in spirit. Great. Okay. I, I enjoyed this very much. And, uh, you know, I think both of you are just uh, terrific and doing great stuff. And of course, Jill, that's been true since I first met you way back in the day when we had another set of crises that we faced successfully. Let's hope that we can work arm in arm and work with Victor to get past this one. I hope so. Um, we're having our 50th reunion in October wow. from the Watergate prosecution team. Yeah. Amazing. It is well, amazing. <laughs> yes. Well, and it's, what's also amazing is that you look exactly as you did back then. <laughs> Not quite, but we keep trying. We keep working at it. So I appreciate your time and thank you for being with us. Thank you, Norm. Thank you guys. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Thank you everyone for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Norm Ornstein. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We will be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics, so be sure to tune in then. But in the meantime, you can subscribe to us right here on youtube.com slash Politicon, like uh, and subscribe to this video, of course. And you can also follow us wherever you follow your podcasts and rate us on Apple Podcasts as that helps tremendously. And uh, again, we thank you for tuning in and we will see you next week. And just as a tease, I know who our guest is next week and it's about her new book, which is fascinating and she's a great guest. So you won't wanna miss next week. 